Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. This is the first of two episodes with Amos Schwarzfarb. He's the managing director of Techstars Austin. In this episode, we talk about the fundamental part you need to nail before you can scale your startup. The who, what, and the why. Hi, and welcome to Shifters Podcast. I'm so delighted to introduce this week's guest, Amos Schwarzfarb. With over 100 seed investments, uh, he's a former entrepreneur who had his companies acquired multiple times. And since uh, 2015, he has been the managing editor uh, director of Techstars Austin, where he works with startups. And uh, last year, pretty much exactly a year ago, he co-authored the book Levers, which is, in my opinion, probably the best startup book out there for founders. I reached out to him on LinkedIn, and uh, thankfully, he accepted to be part of this show. So both thanks and welcome, Amos. Lucas, thank you so much, and thank you for the very, very kind words. Uh, you know, we had a we had a lot of fun writing levers, and we're happy to have it out in the world. And hearing, you know, compliments like yours, um, like the effort was worth it anyway. But it makes it extra special. So, really appreciate that. No problem. So, so what what is levers exactly? So. <laughs> I can answer that question two ways. The way that we think about levers is if you can visualize in your mind um, a lever that literally can like, you know, when you know what it is, you can make something move up and down. We think about that, the, the, that word very specifically as we wrote the book. So the idea behind levers as the, as the book is how do you identify what the real levers are in your business that matter? so that you can control them as best possible in order to be as successful as possible with whatever business you're trying to build. Yeah, and uh, so because of lever, what is exactly is a lever? Like like specifically, what, what is it? A lever, if you can imagine like a seesaw, you know, like that goes up and down. Like, so a lever looks like a seesaw. So you might use a lever, like if you're trying to lift something heavy up, you'd stick a lever underneath it and then you put a fulcrum in the middle of it and then you press down on on the on the side that's up in the air so that it lifts the heavy object. Yeah. So is it is it uh, okay to say it's uh, some sort of a multiplier? Yes, should be. Yeah. When you understand it. Yeah. yeah. Great. Okay, so um uh, so let let us hear a little bit about yourself from yourself. So so who are who are you and, and what have you done and wh- why are you working with startups and making them grow exponentially? Yeah. Th- um so my name is Amos Schwartzfarb. I'm I'm currently the managing director of Techstars in Austin. 
Uh, I got my career started in the Bay Area in the mid '90s, um, and was fortunate enough to be a part of a couple of re- really fun companies um, in the Bay Area in the '90s. At the you know the the beginning of the the tech boom, um, that those companies one was Shoreline Mountain Products, which was one of the first e-commerce companies in the world. And the second was a company called Hot Jobs, which was one of the first uh, online places where you can go and find the job. Now, it's this is just how you do it. But at the time, most people did it via the newspaper, if you can imagine that. <laughs> uh, and um, then after that, I moved to Los Angeles, where um, I started another company called Work.com. We merged with another company called Business.com, which we, we sold a few years later. And then shortly after that, I moved to Austin, where I, I started uh, another company in the music space called My Schoonful that got acquired. And then I joined an early stage company as um, head of head of sales um, called Black Locust, which was back in the e-commerce space, but on the data side, which we sold um, pretty quickly to Home Depot. And then uh, the, the sixth company, early stage company I was a part of, was a company called Joust in the... Um, uh, in, in which was a, a gaming, an idea, it's social gaming. Uh, our timing was not good, and that one actually was not a success. Uh, and then shortly after that, in 2015, I, I joined TechStars as the managing director here and have been investing via the accelerator since then, although I made probably 30 or 40 investments prior to, maybe 50 investments prior to, to even joining TechStars. So, so why are you so uh, uh, into startups? You know, that's a, I think about that a lot and I don't think there's any, there's not a single reason, but if I tried to boil it down to something, um, looking backwards, there is a combination of, there's something interesting to me, like in a startup that I can see what it could be. And I, I feel like I have like an innate understanding of what the puzzle pieces are that need to get solved, even though I don't know how to solve the puzzle. And I think that at its core is why I get excited about the startups versus more mature companies. And then the other side of that is I really enjoy working with people and helping them figure out how to solve those puzzles. So it's a combination of solving them myself and, and empowering others to, to do similar. Um, and I've been very fortunate in my career that I can pass some of that uh, knowledge and, and maybe more than knowledge, all of my mistakes down so other people don't make them. Um, and so the, I think the two things, you know, like one one part of that gets at just sort of like the core uh, who, of who I am and sort of like solving things. And then the other is, uh, you know, this this desire to be empathetic and helpful to, to other humans. So uh, with all that knowledge, I'm going to ask you uh, a, a question which is impossible to answer, maybe. Uh, so what is the one thing that you have learned through these years <laughs> that you would uh, uh, pass on to to, to uh, entrepreneurs that are uh, following in your uh, trail? Yeah, um, it is a very hard question to answer, but I'll, I'll boil it down to, to this. I'm going to say it, it's going to sound really obvious, but then I'm going to like peel it apart a little bit. Um, starting a company is one of the hardest things that, that someone can take on that, that is a conscious decision. And yes, every entrepreneur has heard that every entrepreneur that has done it once or twice or several times has been through it. Um, 
but I think that the, the thing that, um, that really like strikes me because I've, you know, I've worked with literally well over a hundred startups at this point, um, is that every single one is a little different than the next one and the challenges like, yes, we'll see a lot of the same challenges, but there's always unique challenges and it is, it is really, really hard. It takes a very, very long time to be successful. It also can take a very, very long time to figure out that you're not going to be successful. And it requires um, an appetite for suffering and um, that and it requires you to be very optimistic and oftentimes um, uh, uh, like not, not even realistic in your optimism to be successful and it's not something that I recommend. Like, you know, I, I think like it, for those listening, if you are thinking that you want to start a company because you think it would be cool to start a company, or if you think that being an entrepreneur is a career, I strongly urge you to take a pause because it is different than that. If you're going to start a company, I think that here's maybe how I would boil it down. You need to be so obsessed with solving the problem that you literally, you don't care how it gets solved. You just want it to get solved. And that might mean that you do it inside of another company, you do it yourself, but you are willing to put everything out there because if you're not willing to do that, the chances of you being successful are almost nil. So love the problem, not the solution. Correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. Yeah. So, um, uh, your book is a is a pretty much a framework consisting of different types of frameworks. Uh, am I correct? Um, yes. And 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 you use frameworks to reduce risks, right? To 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 to, to yeah. be successful with your company. Yeah, I think of like for me in the way that my brain operates, I think about frameworks as a way to put. Um, to, to put uh, a box around something that really shouldn't have a box around it, right? Like starting a company, there's so much ambiguity that, that having a framework or a series of frameworks allows you to work within something that gives you parameters. And you might find that those are the wrong parameters, but now you know because, you know, because you're like, oh, wait, this isn't the right thing. And so like, you know, as we're about to probably get into talking about the book, I think the one thing that I urge founders out there all the time, which is um, we, we, the authors of this book, believe firmly that this is a process that works, but we don't care if you use this one or something else, find a process and work within that process. It will help you be more successful. And if you can't find one you like, here's one that you can try. Okay. So if I understand you correctly, it, it gives you some boundaries to work within so you don't go leaping off to every type of different types of uh, framework and do one thing here, one thing there. Uh, is that is that a yeah, yeah? Yes, and chasing shiny objects and getting distracted and not knowing if you're moving forward. You just think you're moving forward and prioritizing mm -hmm. the stuff you have to do. It helps keep everything in a line so that you can say, well, okay, there's something that's out of the line. So maybe that's okay, but now you know it's out of the line, and you can make adjustments along the way. Yeah, exactly. So con to 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 uh, guarantee consistency in in a way, right? So consist yes. consistency probably is a very very important thing to to have uh, when you when you when you build a company. 
Okay, so right. let, let's go into the um, the, the nitty gritty of this uh, this book and, and the different types of uh, frameworks you have uh, laid out. So the the first one is to me is very crucial. It's like if you don't nail this one, uh, it's going to have uh, consequences, right? You can you can it, you're not building a business. Uh, you're building something, but it's probably not the business because. The fundamental part of uh, building a business is to have customers buying your product, right? And yep. and you call this the W three. I'm, I'm I'm always thinking about World War Three. I don't know why when I read this abbreviation, <laughs> but uh, but bad, it's bad, yeah, bad timing in our, in our <laughs> world history. <Yeah. laughs> so it's basically who is my customer? What are they buying? And what uh, what are they buying? And uh, why are they buying? buying it yep. and, and to me this is close to jobs to be done theory but uh, let me hear in your own words what what is what is w3 yeah so the the i'll try to keep it simple and short i the way that i think about it is this regardless of the problem you're trying to solve there is a, there is a there is someone who you are serving and in order to properly serve them and build the best business you can, you ha- it's very important to have a deep understanding of them and their needs, regardless of what you think as the entrepreneur. And so the W3 on its surface is just three very simple questions. What makes it challenging is to be able to collect enough data to say with 100% accuracy that you actually know the answer to those three questions. And so, and I'll go into the three questions in a second, but the way that I, the way I think about it is on day one of your business or day zero of your business, you have an idea of how to answer those questions. And in the early days, your job is to go prove that the answers you think are correct are actually correct. And, you know, I'd say better than 90% of the time, probably closer to 99% of the time, some of the thing, things that you believe are not accurate, that's totally fine. But this gives you a framework to go figure out what is accurate so that you can get to repeatability in the customer you're trying to sell. So the three questions are, who are you selling to? And not the broad, oh, we sell to the healthcare industry, but the very specific, we sell to tiny you know, private hospitals that are 500 to 1,000 employees. And we sell to the director of IT. The director of IT has been with that organization for less than a year, but in, in their current role for more than three years. And they're trying to solve a very specific thing, which is a mandate of their their boss, and they're measured in this way. Very, very, very specific. Who is your customer? Right? You might even say, like, where do they go to school or what is their age? Like all of the attributes of that person. The why similar. It's not uh, I'm sorry, the what? It's not what do you do, it's what do you do for me. So not I sell software to hospitals, it's um the the the, the value that you bring to the hospital. So I create a, a time efficiency that equates to 0.5 improvement in margins for hospitals that meet my who. That's the value you bring to them. What do you do for them? And then the why is why do they why do they buy and how do they measure it? Right, because you're improving margin, you're you're increasing sales, you're increasing time efficiencies. Um, so really, really important. So it's the answer to those three questions, but with as much specificity as possible. I think you mentioned somewhere that uh, you have to be able to specify a group which into which you can sell to 100% of that group. 100% of that group will buy this product. Am I correct? 
That's right. And so the way I, I, I do that very intentionally to be provocative, right? Your your entire customer set may not have that that attribute set, and you may not get a yes one hundred percent of the time. But there should be a subset where if you hit every attribute right, there's no reason they they will say yes one hundred percent of the time. Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få en professionell investerare till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi säger en ting de proffs investerarna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. If they say no, then one of the attributes is wrong. And so the, the, the quest is to understand with 100% accuracy. The achievement of that is nearly impossible. But on that quest, you will find out how to be repeatable so that you can have a high degree of accuracy when identifying the right customer so that you know that your percent chance of closing them and getting a customer that not just closes, but is a happy long-term customer is very high. But how do you know this when you don't have any customers? (laughs) There is only one way that I know how to do this, and it's very old-fashioned. Roll up your sleeves and go have 100 or 1,000 or 5,000 conversations. You have to go do the hard work. There's no way around it. And for people that are out there that think you can go set up a bunch of ads on Google and do a survey and get accuracy, you'll get some directional accuracy, but you will not fully understand your customer until you go talk to hundreds of them. And if you're a consumer product, probably more like thousands. But that's 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 a very good advice. Uh, although I, I have never heard heard that you should talk to thousand customers manually. That's really. But uh, you you I think you're you're saying that because you want to specify that it's it is actually a big job to do this. You you, you really need to understand who your your customer is. But um, how do you? But but there's difference in in terms of how you in, so interviewing is one thing, right? But there's there's a great difference between a good interview and a bad interview, right? So because if you you can ask if you ask questions to just to 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 confirm your beliefs, right? You will probably get those answers, and you will think that this is a this is a good product. But but don't you need to be really really critical about how you ask these questions and what you're actually after? One hundred percent, yes. And it's, it's how you ask the questions. It's what, what are the questions that you ask? I think the, like a mental mode to be in is a combination of like open-ended questions. Like I'm trying to understand, uh, uh, I'm trying rather than get a yes or no, I'm trying to understand the why and the what and the why being the important thing. So like keep asking like, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? And then the other mental model in parallel is, um, can you think about why might I be wrong? Right. And so those two mindsets together, if you, you know, it is like, you have to step away from yourself and say, I know I'm right because you really might not be. And even if you are, you want to, you want to prove it because someone else tells you not because you believe it. And, and yes, I think that is a very challenging thing to do, especially for someone who is, you know, trying to be optimistic and trying to change the world. But that is, that is the job to be done. Yeah. 
I mentioned earlier, love the problem, uh, not the solution. Uh, isn't that very hard yeah. to do for an entrepreneur? Because an entrepreneur has a vision and they have a, like, you know, they have the solution and they have the product in mind and just, they just need to find some customers. But what you're saying is that you need to find that co those customers and they will tell you what the product is. That, that is, that is exactly what I'm saying. And, you know, I would say there in, in the hundred plus companies that I've invested in, um, there has never been a single one who hasn't been a little bit wrong, right? doesn't mean they're a lot wrong. Some of them are a lot wrong. Some of them are a little bit wrong, but if you go, and this is a caution to you, all of you founders out there that are early, early stage, if you go in there, assuming 100% that you are right, you will fail. I promise you, you have to go in with an open mind. You might only be nuanced a little bit incorrect. And so your assumption, that assumption might be how people value you, might be how you articulate that value, right? It could be little things. It could be big things. You have to go in with an open mind if you want to capture the right information to figure out how you actually get to repeatability and scale. Because just like you are a unique person, so is every single one of your customers unique. And so you have to figure out what are the, the broader the you know the broader data set that allows you to to group people together and just say okay this is accurate so do do you have like a real life example of a company of a product uh, who thought they knew what they were selling to whom and but uh, after they went through this workshop they they totally changed it and and actually found the right customer yeah yeah i have literally dozens and dozens of examples um i think the one that i will use is a company that i was a part of which is where which is where i came up with the concept of w3 and named it which is at business.com so when i joined there was a bunch of things but when we joined when i joined they had customers they were doing about six or seven million dollars in revenue there was no repeatability in the revenue. So we were losing customers as fast as we were getting them. And, and, I, and really this is what it was. Like I asked these three questions and why over and over again until we had, had, had data. And so when I joined, um, they thought we were selling, well, we thought we were selling to anyone uh, who was a B2B customer. We thought the product that we were selling, not buying, but we thought the product we were selling was a search advertising platform. And we, were, we thought that we were doing it, um, this part we, we got right, but we thought we were doing it so that they could um, buy customers. What we learned was we were our customer was not just any B2B. There was a lot of nuance there. There was a very there were still thousands and thousands of customers, but there was a very specific nuance to what those customers looked like. It was people who already knew and were already buying search elsewhere. And this is you know early days of Google. So you know, we were doing search we started search around the same time Google started doing search advertising. People who were already buying search somewhere else. Um, people who were, had a specific role in their organization for someone who was buying search and it didn't just fall under a marketing umbrella, um, companies who were extremely data driven companies who were at, able to track, uh, conversion metrics all the way through the bottom of the funnel, which in today's world probably sounds absurd, but back when we were doing this, it was not, it, it was a, it was an important nuance, but it's a very different who than what we originally thought. And the, um, the, the what is we were not selling a search platform. We were selling sales. And it, and so anyone who was looking to buy research or, 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 uh, 
you know, or doing branding was not a good customer for us. We might be able to close them, but they wouldn't stay a customer for very long because it's not what we were. They were actually buying from us. They were buying sales from us. How do you find out what they are buying from you? What is the good question to find that out? How do you how do you know? It's it, I don't think it's a single question. I think it's a conversation that that sounds something like, you know, talk to me about how, you know why you value this relationship. Talk to me about the value you think that we bring to you. And listening for the the key words and the trigger words that they're saying to help you understand what it is, right? In that, they'll say, well, the value is, you you know, you bring me customers and you bring me customers at a value of X. Yeah. And uh, and and why, why? so you, you you say, what are they buying? And and why are are they buying it? So what are the nuances mm-hmm. in, in why are they buying it? The why is how it impacts the business. So the what is is literally the what, right? Like we are buying leads or we are buying sales. The why is because it will improve our revenue. It will increase our margins. It will give me more time to do other work. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so this is the the who, uh, what, why, and and uh, it's it's uh, extensively described in in the book. How do you also perform do the the, the workshop and and find this out. Uh, the the next part is about the revenue formula, and I found this chapter really interesting. But uh, what is a revenue formula, Amos? Because you speak about repeatability, and what maybe to understand revenue formula, we need to to define what what is what is repeatability. Yeah. So so repeatability means that you have a deep understanding that if you do something, you know what that outcome will be. And so if you do it five times, you know that you'll get five times the output. If you do it 10 times, you'll do 10 times the output, right? So the repeatability means you deeply understand, not that you just do something more and it happens, but you deeply understand why, why it is happening. That's what repeatability is. And you need repeatability before you can scale. If you try to scale before you have repeatability, everything breaks because you don't understand how it actually works. When you find repeatability first and then scale, then you say, okay, I understand why it works the way that it works. So I'm able to maximize scale because I understand how to repeat the thing that I'm doing over and over again. Let me interrupt really you. Sorry, sorry, let me interrupt you a little bit because um, repeatability, and then you also have the concept of product market fit. How do how do those two relate? So. If you go look at if you go Google product market fit, you're going to get a, a whole bunch of definitions that vary along the timeline of a business. And I do talk about our version, our definition of product market fit in early in the book, and I think it's important when we think about product market fit. It means that the that the it is a something that doesn't happen for many many years. It is when you've saturated the market and your customers at mass cannot live without you product market fit does not mean you have 15 customers that tell you they love you it means you have 5,000 or 10,000 customers that if you went away tomorrow their business would break okay so would, would you say that is a stricter definition of uh, what we normally yes. hear yeah yeah uh i don't know if it's what we normally hear i think that i think if you go look it up you'll find that definition and you'll find looser definitions and i think what happens is a lot of time founders want to go for the easiest definition so they can check the product market fit box. And I'll tell you, I get customers or companies that are pitching me all the time. Oh, we found product market fit because we have 10 customers. Well, if you have, then you'd have 10,000. <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe if those 10 customers were 10 countries, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably. Yeah. And, uh, but, um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, and how, yeah, is that a problem? Uh, you mentioned it indirectly now, but is that a problem that you, you think you have product market fit and you don't, and then you scale too early? Yes. It is, it is probably one of the, one of the biggest mistakes on the sales side that I see over and over and over again. Someone gets three or four or five customers and they're like, yep, we have product market fit. And then they hire a bunch of salespeople and everything breaks because they don't, they don't really understand the repeatability in the sales process. They don't understand the repeatability on the customer side. They don't understand what the value re- tra- trans, um, transfer really is. They don't understand what's the long-term value for the customer. But you're saying that it, it takes a lot of, up to many years to get the product market fit. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that you should wait many years to scale your business? Nope, that is not what I'm saying. You scale long before you find product market fit. The way that I think about it is you, there's, you know, there's a few steps that come before repeatability. There's ideation, there's building an MVP, there's collecting data so that you can constantly you know, move closer and closer to uh, finding repeatability, and then you find repeatability. And once you find repeatability, right, that is a, that take that can take you years, right? It can take mm. you two years, it can take you three years, it can take you five years. That repeatability, that's actually what Series A investors are looking for. Do you understand the mechanics in your business so that if we put more fuel on this, the fire will get bigger? Once you understand that repeatability. Then you can start to scale. A whole bunch of things are going to break along the way. But if, if you think about product market fit, product market fit is almost like a long-term destination, right? It's what Salesforce has. Okay, so it's pretty what, much right, it's, what, it's what Uber has. It's what LinkedIn has, right? But they have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of customers. Yeah, and probably uh, and with customers that have built their own ecosystems on top of your or on your solution. Yep. Okay, so okay, this is this is a pretty strict definition of product market fit. It's uh, it's it's like if you have product market fit, it looks like you actually have succeeded building a business. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But, but you don't you don't actually have succeeded building repeatability. That only means that you have control over or understand the the specific drivers of your product and then maybe also the unit economics of the product, so you can. Can say if I put in one more in here, it will generate four more out there. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about I talk about this in the book too. I, I I like to think about it as product market direction. So all along you're getting a tighter, tighter direction towards product market fit, right? So, you know, here's an analogy for you, which is like imagine being thrown in the middle of middle of the United States, right? You just like drop down in the middle and no one tells you even north, south, east, or west, they don't tell you anything. And they just say, you need to go to Temecula, California. You don't have a map. Never heard of Temecula before. You kind of know California is in this general direction, but you don't know if it's north or south, right? And you start walking. And over time, you start picking up clues so that instead of like walking 80 degrees off from it and going way too far north, you start to narrow in and be like, okay, now I know it's south. Now I know it's really south, but it's not quite as far south as Mexico. And over time, you're, you're heading in the right direction. You're getting closer to eventually the day when you're lucky enough to look back and say, oh, I found product market fit. I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then I can sell my company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, is, is, so is product market fit? So you're talking about product market uh, direction, but to me, it sounds like a product market destination. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think fit, for me, fit and destination are, 
are are synonymous. Okay, so so okay, let's so kind of like think about this like a pair of pants, right? You might be <laughs> searching for the right pair of pants. Yeah, you might get ones that are too big or too small. Yeah, the fit or the destination is finding the pants you can actually wear out to dinner. 